Welcome team, you can go ahead and start taking in the offering just as I chat. We're, uh, we're working through, a, I'm just trying to sort myself out here, working through a series in Galatians and I'm looking forward to jumping into the next section. Uh, my, name is, uh, my name is Glenn and uh, I'm the pastor here at Willow Park Church South and we're really glad that you made it out this morning to us. I know the internet's not working. I don't even know how we managed to get this far. Um, I actually heard as walking through the hallway, the, the internet's not working, the Wi-Fi's down, the Wi-Fi's down, and then the accusatory looks start towards the pastor. You're going to do something about this? Because how are we expected to, uh, I'm being facetious, obviously. However, I, I do apologize, the internet is down. I've been told that apparently Telus or Shaw or whoever it is has decided to use Sunday morning to, uh, to do some updates. And uh, the people I actually feel sorry for is the child check-in because they've been doing it frantically by manual and uh, by crayon, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but hopefully, uh, hopefully it's not affecting you too much. If it is your first time, we are one church in four locations and the south in the mission. Uh, we've got, and then we've got Lake Country and we have one in Glenmore and one in 33 as well. And uh, they're meeting all over at about this time. And it's good to be one large church in several locations. We can serve the city really well in that way. Uh, we're really glad that you made it. And if it is your first time, we have Connect cards that are in the seat pocket in front of you. Uh, you can fill that out and we would be happy to answer any questions you might have. And then we can keep in touch and let you know what's going on. It's not signing in blood. We don't get direct access to your family and your bank account. It really is just a way for you to find out a little bit more about what we're about at the south. If you have your bulletin, and I'm hoping we do have the bulletin, I didn't check, uh, you should have a piece of paper that looks a little bit like this inside there. Can, is, is, it, is it in there? Yes, thank you. You can get that out and follow along with some of the things I'm going to be sharing in just a minute. Uh, tomorrow night, uh, we have our prayer walk. Sarah and I will be here, one arm Sarah. Um, if you want to join us at seven o'clock, we leave right on the dot at 7 and we just do a walk. It takes about 45, 50 minutes. Uh, we'd love for you to join us. And if not, then I get a romantic prayer walk with my wife. It's, it's all good. So uh, I, I don't mind if you don't come, but would be blessed if you did. It would be wonderful. Okay, let's, uh, let's grab our Bibles. And I need to make a confession. It happened. The glasses happened. Yes. Okay. I know. Galatians chapter 1, after all these years of making fun of my wife, the Lord has provided. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to read a little bit of a longer scripture if you've got your Bibles. Uh, I'd love for you to follow along or your, um, on your apps. Uh, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. If you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. 
Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it, said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that as we do church this morning, and as we come into your presence, we do so, Lord, by your instruction, by your command, but also, Lord, by your initiation. That, Lord, you started You initiated church all those years ago, the family of God. And so, Lord, I thank you that we this morning in in safety in our country are blessed enough to be able to gather together, to hear from you, Lord, to worship you, to bless you, Lord, to, to hear you speak to us through your word. And, Lord, we're thankful that we get to do that. Lord, I pray now, by way of confession, But Lord, that we stand before you knowing that we carry baggage, we carry thoughts, we carry priorities, Lord, that that are not in alignment with your word. And so, Father, I pray that as as we lean in to listen to what you have to say to us from this scripture, that, Lord, I pray you would be merciful and gracious to speak to us. Holy Spirit, you are already here. We don't need to welcome you because you are already here. Lord, I pray that you would do that which only you can do and take these fumbling words from my mouth, Lord, and create change in hearts and spirits and minds in this place. Thank you, God, for that privilege. And Lord, I echo the prayers of many before me when I say, less of me, Lord, and and more of you. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. We love you. Amen. I don't know if anybody else, and I can say this because uh, I, I know many of you know me well and know my heart. This is not something I would say very often and not something I plan to say. But we need as a church, church family south, we need to understand that, that when, when we're told in the scriptures that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, hello, kids church, you can go, sorry, distracted. I'm just trying to see Dan doing his inspirational dance there. I just wanted to say amen, praise God. When the scripture says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, I don't think we can underestimate the power of those words, that we have principalities, we have an enemy that is in the unseen world. And for those of you like, what is he talking about, unseen world? Maybe you're just thinking through Christianity, you're not sure where you're at with that yet. I think we all sense, regardless of where we are spiritually, that there's more going on than what we just see and feel. And as a Christian, we believe very strongly that in the heavenlies, in the, in the principalities, in the unseen world, that there is a war going on between good and evil. And, and we as a church are on the side of the king that ultimately wins in the end and continues to win until there. But getting there, there are times when it is difficult, it is challenging, and you feel like you're battling. And I want to be honest with you this morning, I feel that way today. I woke up this morning and I immediately felt... I was in a battle. And I'm not a sort of guy who over-spiritualizes everything. But I knew, I just knew that this week and today, 
I'm in a battle. And I can feel it in this room right now. I can feel it. There's a tension. Because whenever we come with an open heart and an open mind and an open Bible, there's an enemy that wants to snatch everything that could be said to you and just put it to the side and hopefully you'll forget it because this, this word changes hearts and minds and lives. It changes communities. It changes cities. And so as the scripture says, that we have an enemy who would want to snatch that away and put it to a side. So Christian friends, brothers, sisters... Pray as I'm preaching, because the words that I preach are not only being heard by you, they're being heard by principalities and powers. Which is why I don't mind Sarah and I being the only ones walking this neighborhood praying. Because I have stopped underestimating the power of our words and prayers, even by one person. And so if it's just one or two that are praying then God can move on the back of that powerfully, significantly. Let's never underestimate the power of what is actually happening in this moment. As I open the Word, and I've spent many hours uh, prepping and praying through this passage, it's significant, not because of what I say, but the Word says that His Word will not return to us void. In other words, it is always powerful when we lift up Jesus, because John says, as we lift Him up, He will draw men and women to Himself. So Christian friends and brothers and sisters, let's put aside whatever feelings you may be feeling in this. Maybe it's just me, but I I can sense it. I can feel it. Let's pray through it. Let's preach through it. Let's lean in through it. Let's believe that God has something to say to each one of us. Amen? Okay, Father, we've just declared some truth right now, and we're believing as we speak, as I speak, Lord, that you will break through and break down anything, Lord, that would seek to build up against your word and resist it. Lord, we pray for life change because, Lord, we believe in a transformational gospel. In the name of Jesus, amen. 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 Okay, so uh, we've been working through Galatians, and Galatians is really a book about the gospel. And So we've been talking a lot about the gospel the last few weeks. And then this passage is really interesting because the gospel is nothing at all if it's not transformational. The gospel is nothing at all if it's not transformational. Christianity is a transformational religion. Is not a religion just with a set of rules and boundaries by which we live by and the hope that God will be pleased enough to bless us and get us into heaven. It's a gospel, it's a message that promises daily transformation, radical change. Otherwise, we're just gathering as a group of people, just hoping in something that really is just empty. This is not empty, it's, it's powerful. And in verse 11, okay, I might have to catch up on some of my slides. Um... We've read through this already. Okay. In verse 11, Paul says something really, really important and actually quite controversial about the transformational nature of the gospel. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. It didn't come to him from somebody. It didn't come from himself. This wasn't a good idea that somebody muddled together 2,000 years ago in the hope to try and bring control to cities and cultures, which is one of the accusations that people have against Christianity. Oh, it's just a construct to control. But you see, Paul's answer to that is really intriguing because what he does is he gives us a bit of a biography. He tells us it's not just a message, it's transformational. I didn't come just from human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. 
And then he goes on, for you have heard of my previous way of life. So Paul's answer to the criticism that he's getting about the gospel and the lack of transformation of just the pure gospel. Because remember, Galatians is about a group of people saying the gospel isn't enough. You need to do other things as well. Paul saying, no, the gospel is enough. This isn't an idea that I came up with just to, you know, one day. It's not something that was just taught to me. I received it from Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and explains significantly how he knows that to be true. The gospel is powerful. It's powerful. Which is why I started by saying what I did say, because if we really believe the gospel, it's an experiential belief. It's not just an understanding. You can't understand the gospel without actually being changed by it. And the idea of change and experience is something, in, in certainly in Britain, and, and I think in, in, in Canada too, is we, we don't like the experiential side of it. We kind of resist that. Because experiential means things that maybe we don't like. And I'm not talking about charismatic gifts necessarily and the loud and rambunctious church or whatever. I'm talking about personal transformation. But the reality is this. Paul said in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is transformational. It changes lives radically. Because what we believe here as a church. We are a gospel-centered church. That's it. That's our plan. It's the gospel. It's to preach the gospel. It's to pray the gospel. It's to sing about the gospel. It's to tell people about the gospel. It's to show the gospel through our good works. We're a gospel-centered church. We're not a program-centered church. We don't try and just provide good times for people in the hope that they fall into heaven one day. That's not what we do. We believe in the gospel and sometimes the gospel is hard to hear, but it's always transformational. Because what happened on that cross was transformational. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, Paul again says, God made him, Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called that verse the great exchange. What it means is this, and it's so beautifully simple and yet profoundly transformational that actually makes people feel uncomfortable to the point that it's offensive because it's declaring some truths. It's saying this, first and foremost, we need a savior because our own fixing isn't sufficient to change and transform that which deep inside we know needs to be different. We carry sin, we carry shame, we carry things that have been done to us, things that we have done ourselves. And we have no capability of doing anything about it. We've tried. We've spent billions and billions and billions of trying. So what Paul is saying is Jesus Christ died on that cross and became sin, my sin, died with him, and then this exchange happened. My sin for his righteousness. I get to be in right standing with God. Justified. Innocent. That my sin has been forgiven. Transformation happens. I can stand before God, accepted as one whom has been loved enough that his son would die for me. So when God looks at me, God the Father looks at me, He sees what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me. He became sin so that I could have His righteousness of God. The gospel is transformational. And so this forces a question upon us. Every one of us. First and foremost, 
Has that transformation, that change actually happened in your life? Has there been a point in your life, and maybe, you know, really, I think there's kind of really broadly speaking, kind of three categories of Christian in this, in this frame of reference. The first one is somebody who has lived life and then became a Christian as an adult. That would be my mom and dad. Okay? Lived a life and then became a Christian as an adult. Over kind of 18, 19. They were quite a bit over that. But that, that's the first person. How many of you Christians are, are in that category? I'm raising hands. We can be Pentecostal. Okay. Then there's people who... Uh, became a Christian as a child, maybe you were born into a Christian family, you became a Christian as a child, but then you drifted off and you did the, kind of the recommitment came to Jesus later on as an adult. So, made some commitment, drifted a little while, came back to Jesus. How many, how many Christians are in that category? Okay. Then there's people who, like this would be more Sarah, who were just kind of seem to be born Christian, but matured and grew in their faith, and there was recommitments as they went, and there wasn't a defining moment where you can go, that was the moment. How many, Sarah, you don't need to put your hand up. How many would be in that, that category? Okay. So here's what I'm, I'm getting at. For those of you who just put hands up, or those of you who mentally put your hands up, you're just like, oh, God. Um, you've experienced that transformational change. What Paul is describing here is your testimony, your sin, your shame applied to Jesus, died with Jesus, his life, his righteousness applied, imputed onto you for eternity. That is your story. Some of you have not experienced that. Some of you are still carrying your sin. Jesus is not. You are not carrying his righteousness. So that, that's something you have to consider. Is where are you at with that? Has that change actually happened to you? But everybody in this room, this scripture applies to because the gospel is ongoing change and transformation. It's not a one-time thing. It's initial and it's ongoing. So the big question is this. Has it happened to you? If not, why not? And if it has happened to you, is it still happening to you on a daily basis? Are you continually being transformed and changed? And Paul gives us a little bit of a test. Because what he does is he gets really, really personal for a few verses. And then verse 24, he says this, And they praised God, same passage, because of me. Here's the test. He was so radically transformed and changed that people saw him, heard him, thought, I know what Paul was like and praised God because of the change that had happened in Paul's life. So here's a second question. Not only has it happened to you and is it happening to you, but are people praising God because of the change that has happened to you and is happening to you on a daily basis? That your life is so radically different on a daily basis that you are continually growing in him that people are looking at your life and actually thinking there's something more than a self-help book going on here. And they actually start searching after God because people have noticed. Because people will take notice of radical change. And radical change, the gospel, is not a one-time event. The gospel is a daily radical change. We never outgrow the gospel. We always grow into it and grow up through it. 
And so are people praising us because of the change that is happening in our lives? Because that is what Paul is referring to. They take notice. This initial transformation, an ongoing transformation, has that happened? So Paul gets so personal to make sure that we understand what he's talking about here. In verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Just as an aside, one of the things that we've been talking a lot about recently, over the last year maybe, is the power of story, power of testimony. That God has so uniquely given you a transformational story, Christian friend, that, that that isn't just for you to keep, it's for you to share, because people will actually see and hear the gospel through your life and your words. And we talk about that a lot. The greatest advantage you have is your story. The greatest argument you have for Christianity is your story. It's not your ability to talk about science and evolution and clues of God or apologetics or or anything like that. Your greatest argument is your own personal transformation. So Paul, who is genius when it comes to theology and revelation, doesn't start referring to theology and revelation. What he does in proof of the transformational effect of the gospel goes to his story. My previous way of life in Judaism. Because here a man is a man who was so filled with hate, he killed Christians. He persecuted Christians. Now, I don't know what your Christian resume is like, but I'm kind of hoping that isn't included. You know, and, and I'm sure you've all heard the testimonies. I'm sure you sat there going, wow, that's an amazing story that somebody used to live this life, then they became a Christian, and now they live this life. And you sit there and go, I haven't got a testimony like that. Gosh, like, you know, they were addicted to this, they were involved in that, they beat up this, they were a member of this gang, and, and like, wow, and they killed people. And then they became Christians, and they were transformed. And those stories are wonderful, and, and some of you have got that transformational story. But can I tell you, your ongoing, day-to-day transformational story is as powerful, because what it does is it communicates to people how it is that you live life in the way that you do, with all the circumstances that may be going on. Do you have that story? Because Paul was so filled with hate. And people are able to reflect on that. They remembered it. Some of the people reading this would still be afraid of him, maybe a little suspicious of him. Verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my Fathers, this man Paul was deeply, deeply religious. He worked hard in order to be accepted by God and yet still needed the gospel. So what's your story? Do you have an against all odds story? Because Paul is against all odds, isn't it? Like I know some of your stories against all odds. Like how did that happen? Against all odds. Were you deeply religious? Maybe you came out of a very religious, very churched family and you drifted away and then God got hold of you and you came back and you had that transformational against all odds story. Maybe you were deeply secular, that you would just eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die, let's go. And then one morning, 
one day something happened inside of you and you started looking into God and Jesus and maybe over years and years until one point when you were transformed by the power of the gospel. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you were just agnostic, you know, the hedging the bets, the mutual fund of religion. I'll take a bit of there and I'll have a bit of this and I'll do a bit of that and I'll have a, well, I kind of like that. I'll have more of that and I'll, I'll weight it towards this and pull it all together because I think there's something out there and that... God that is out there is too loving and kind to not let me in at the end. That's agnostic. Maybe that was you. And then God just whispered one day, no, that's not how it works. Something impacted you. Maybe you're de-churched. Maybe you were in church for a long, long, long time and you just needed to get out. We've had people come through the South who uh, have genuine panic and anxiety attacks just the thought of church and that that God draws them back and gets them back involved in ministry God has that ability so here's what I can take away from this and Christian friend please listen to this this is really really important if Paul in his evil act can be reached so can your loved ones so can your loved ones And if Paul, in his anger and his evil and his persecution and hatred towards everything to do with Jesus and the church can be reached, so can you. So can you. God has that ability. So can you. Today, never underestimate or lose hope when it comes to the power of the gospel. He can change the most hardened. He he has a strategy for the unsavable. And I'm very grateful. He has strategies in place for the people in your life that seem to be not only unsavable, but quite frankly are a little bit unlovable. He has a strategy. He has a strategy. And we need to be secure in that. And if you are even here this morning considering Christianity, I believe, I believe that the fact that you're even considering it is God drawing him to you to him. It's already started. It's already started. We have uh, our wonderful Chinese son, Leo. came to live with us a couple of years ago. And uh, he's our homestay student, goes to KCS. He's just part of the family. And you heard his testimony, some of you, a couple of weeks ago when he got baptized. Here's what I love about Leo's story. Apart from how he became a Christian, and it happened really, really quickly. Two years of really resisting it, got to be honest. Um, he, uh, it kind of started with his... Uh, a, a Chinese aunt who is not a Christian and arguably doesn't have any real religion at all, you were saying, she said, maybe you should look into Christianity. See, God can use anybody, anything, at any time, in any part of the world to bring that loved one of yours to Jesus. And we need to be secure in that. And how do I know this to be true? How do I know that God has a strategy for the unreachable? Three words. Three words. But when God. He's saying, look, this is what my life was like. This is how terrible it was. This is how awful it was. But when God. But when God. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me, so that I might in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You see, God, and this is where we get a little controversial, so I need you to listen hard to what I'm saying, because it's very important. 
Because if you don't believe what I'm about to say, then that has profound consequences in your faith or in your search towards Jesus. Okay, you ready? God is not something you discovered or discover. God discovers you. God is not somebody you found. God found you. God is not something that you... Christianity is not something you get into. Christianity gets into you. And it's so important because the, it's a mega theme in the Scriptures. You have to do theological gymnastics and tear pages out of your Bible to make it say anything else. You were not found... Sorry, you were found by God. You did not find God. Because by believing that, you're putting your own self over and above the acts of God. Christianity is not something you get into. Christianity powerfully gets into youth. So Christian friend, just reflect for a second because I I want you to see the truth and the weight and the encouragement in this. You will remember a day when suddenly the truth of the gospel seemed to shine bright. When the logic of the gospel seemed to suddenly make sense. Where powerfully it started getting into you. That you started to sense and recognize that there was some truth in this. Even though you didn't really understand the full aspects of it. You realized that there was a power dealing with you that had come from the outside in. If you do not remember that, you're likely not a Christian. If you cannot relate to the reality of what I've just said, that there's an outside power that seems to deal within you, that you do not search for it, it searches for you, that he searches for you, then it is an indication that perhaps that life-changing, transformational gospel sin on Jesus and Jesus in us has not happened because I promise you that every Christian, every real Christian, every true Christian can remember a moment, a time, a period in their life when it seemed like God was just chasing you down. That's encouraging because it's encouraging that not only does it mean that you are not forgotten, that you are loved, you are chosen and it's wonderful, but it also means that that could be happening right now in the one that seems to be a million miles away from God and you have no idea. That's, that's cheerable because what it means is, I don't even know if that's a word, what it means is, is that those prodigals, You can hold them in an open hand with tears flowing down your face, but you can hold them in an open hand because God is the one that initiates faith. But when God, not when, but when I decided, when God, power came, you can sense it, you felt it. Happened to Leo, I can actually pinpoint the moment when I saw it happen in my front room. Just this realization, beautiful. And it's happened to many of you in this room. One of my favorite quotable people is C.S. Lewis. Oh, I just wish I could think like this guy. Look at that. I did not decide I was decided upon. He was talking about becoming a Christian. Now, so here's what's interesting about C.S. Lewis. Because some of you go in, sounds very Calvinistic. C.S. Lewis didn't believe in predestination, was not a Calvinist at all. And yet knew from experience there was a moment when it felt like he was decided upon. 
So it's not about Calvinism and Arminianism. In fact, Calvinists and Arminians, as I keep saying, actually agree on this point. They agree that God initiates faith. They just disagree on whether you can resist it or not. But C.S. Lewis knows I was decided upon that God has a strategy for the unsavable. And so I want you to be encouraged that that loved one that you are praying for, God has a strategy. And Christian friend, as you look back over your life, you can see that this second part of the scripture is also true. Who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. It's all God-centered. But something really profound is nestled in there. Set me apart. It's an active word. Set me apart. Set me apart. That God has been involved in your life all along. Not in some vague, mysterious way, but intricately involved. Even when you were not aware, he was there. Years before you became a Christian, he was there. Intricately involved in every detail of your life. I much prefer to believe in a God who is in full control than believe in a God who set everything in motion and then step back to let's see what goes on. That just, I don't understand that theology at all. I want a God that's intricately involved in every aspect because he makes him more God. But it also gives me encouragement. I look back at my life and I look at the good, the bad, the ugly, and just the plain stupid. I can go, God was involved somehow. I don't know how, but he, but he was. How many of you... I need to be careful because I think this is maybe something that was more popular in the 80s and 90s and I don't want to offend anybody, but likely I'm going to. Um, how many of you have got one of the footprints in the sand? Thing? No, I'm not, I'll take that question back. How many of you know the footprints in the sand picture? Okay. <laughs> Keep your hand up if no. No, don't. So the, the footprints in the sand picture is this. It's beautiful. It's a picture of a beach and there's, there's, um, there's two sets of footprints and then the story goes... Um, you know, it's, it's Jesus and you walking along the sand through your life. And then the question is asked is, well, Jesus, why is there at one point only one set of footprints? And the answer is because Jesus was what? Carrying you. That's lovely. Love it. It's great. So I Googled this because I thought, should I show them this morning? But instead, something far better, and I wish that I'd had time to actually show you. Maybe I'll show you next week. But there's a a cartoon element to this of a young guy asking Jesus, clearly Jesus because he's got a beard, um, in the cartoon. But Jesus, why is there only one set of footprints? And Jesus turns and asks him and says to him, well, it's that time when, when I carried you through those difficult times. And then the next frame goes, and you see that? That track, he said, that's when I just plain dragged you. And I thought, I relate to that. Like, you know, this image of being dragged with your feet out and Jesus by the scruff of your neck. Come on, come on. That's how sometimes life feels. But he's dragging you. (laughs) He's involved. He's there. Every pain, every Everything that's been done to you, everything that you've been involved, every wrong, every hurt, everything, he was there. Now you could ask, how can a God who is so loving allow that to happen to me? And then we think of Job, the story of Job. Have you read that? Boy, there's not many people who say they've had a Job experience. When you read Job and it's like, whoa, it's just thick, heavy, 
awful. And God allowed this to happen to Job. And then at the end of Job, there's this incredible interaction between God and Job. And God basically shuts Job down, stop your moaning, this is paraphrased, and listen up. And then he starts the, were you there when, do you remember those statements? Were you there when I created the universe, Job? Were you there when, and, and he goes, all this reminder of the power and the magnificent and the ultimate control that God has over Job's life. But here's what's significant about the end of Job. And, and please hear this, because this will encourage you, I hope. He never once, God never once explains to Job why it happened. He leaves that to eternity. Never once does he explain. And there's things that have been done to you and around you and you've been involved in and you've got that question, why? Can I lovingly tell you, you, this side of eternity may never find out why and we have to be okay with that. But we have to trust that God was intricately involved in some way. Because the alternative, because that's an argument, right? How can God be loving if he lets this happen? And Wendy and I were chatting about this last night. That's an argument. How can God be loving if this happens? So my answer to that is all the time is this. Well, okay, let's take God out of the equation. Let's just say God doesn't exist. How has that changed? Has the cancer suddenly gone? Has the situation suddenly rectified itself? Whereas when you bring God into the equation, yes, there are heavy questions that cause tears and sorrow. But God is there. That hope, that that sense that there's something bigger going on, that your story, your against all odds story is developing. Joseph in the Old Testament, all these things that happened to him. He says this right at the end of the story of Joseph. He says, you meant evil against me, talking to his brothers, but God meant it for good. And I was studying this, this idea of how God can use circumstances, the dreadful circumstances in order to strengthen and empower you and even make people say, wow, God is good. Remember that verse 24, that that somehow things can happen to you in your life that point to God. And I know some of your stories, and that's my response often when I hear them. God, it's amazing how he's held you and kept you, and you've become the person you are because of what has happened to you. But as I was studying this question, I stumbled upon a commentary that talks about where Joseph was thrown into the pit. And it's in a place called Dothan, D-O-T-H-A-N. He was thrown into the pit by his brothers because he'd basically been, as we'd say in Britain, gobbing off, just, mm, so his brothers had enough. They literally just thought, right, I'm done. Throw him in the pit and they leave him to die or whatever. I don't care. I mean, Joseph had made some mistakes. And he's in the pit and surely he must have been crying out. Seemingly, God was totally silent. In fact, it seems to just get worse and worse and worse and worse. And yet at the end, he said this, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Same place, Dothan. Hundreds of years later, a character called Elisha was there, surrounded by his enemies, and his servant was with Elisha. And and there's panic going on in the servant's heart because of the enemies that are surrounding them, and they're seemingly going to die. It's a bad situation. And so... Elisha prays and asks that the servant would be able to see what's happening in the heavenlies. And you know the story where suddenly the servant was able to see chariots of fire and angels surrounding them. And then God makes the enemies blind. And there's, there's, it's just this amazing miracle. Same place, Dothan. Immediate answer from God. Immediately clear to see how God is working. And yet previously, Joseph was sat in a pit 
that God was as actively involved in the pit as he was in the chariots of fire. So friend, you might feel like you're in a pit. If you don't feel like you're in a pit, there's likely a pit coming at some point. So I thought, okay, pit, person in transition. Because that's what it is. You're transformed. You're in transition. You're being molded and purged and strengthened. And it adds to your story. And God is going to use your story. That even those things done at your very worst, that God will turn and use. And it's powerful and it's wonderful. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That your very best day, the day when you wake up early and meditate on all the Psalms, twice, while listening to worship music and giving away things to the poor and just everything. You're just so holy. On that day, God loves you. And on your very worst day, when nothing seems to be going right and you're just a horrible person, let's be honest. You're failing, you're sinning. God loves you exactly the same. That is the beauty of the gospel. At your very best, at your very worst, we're a person in transition. If, if, you've had that transformational experience. So let me finish by showing you this verse. Then I went to Syria and, and Cilicia, Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that were in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Unknown. Odds stacked against him. No reputation. By his own admittance, he really wasn't a very good preacher either. He had nothing to offer other than a really, really bad story that put the fear of God in people's lives, literally. That's all he had to offer. And yet God uses Paul so miraculously. His change was so undeniable that people were praising God because of him. So I want to encourage you. You might feel like you're in a pit. You might feel like your life has been a pit. You might feel like there's just been one thing after another that God is developing a wonderful story in you, an undeniable story in you, an undeniable transformational story for you to share so that people can praise God because of you. Our responsibility is to say it because, remember, our greatest argument is our story. And even though you might think that you're nothing and your story is not as impressive, and and let me tell you, if you've not got an impressive story, your story is impressive because God graciously protected you from some of the things that the world throws at other people. You didn't have to live through it. That's your story, that God was so gracious and loving and kind. Every one of us has got a story. Every one of us has got an undeniable change if you have come to Jesus. Paul had a experienced that initial change. Have you? Because if you haven't, you haven't come to the cross and recognized that Jesus is king of your life. He is Lord, that he gave his life for you so that you do not have to experience the punishment for the sin that you truly deserve because it was by your own choice that Jesus says, no, I'll take it. They can have my life. If you've not come to that point, and you don't have a transformational story. But our prayer is, is that you would come to that point where you would give over your life, submit to Jesus Christ, the one who loves you, so that everything else that has happened in between becomes part of your against-the-odds story. And then you too can join the adventure then and share it with other people and see other people coming to know him. It gives purpose and fulfillment in a way that the world cannot offer.
So I want to pray for you. And as pastor, I'm sometimes uh, intimately aware of the challenges that are going on in the lives of people in this congregation. And, uh, And because of the nature of our church, we always have at least a third because of traveling and different things that are not here. And I, and I can think of our congregation as a whole. And there are pit moments. There are, there's pain, there's been suffering, there's been hurt, sickness, death, abuse, marriage issues, children's stuff. Just the list goes on. But can I tell you, I'm so grateful that the story of God seems to just ribbon its way through, just resonates through. And I want to say thanks to the Lord for that. You've been a blessing to me, and I know you're a blessing to other people, but I want to pray for you if you feel like this is, this is happening to you right now. You feel like you're in a pit. Well, you're a person in transition. Person in transition. People in transition. Maybe that's better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Hallelujah. Lord, I pray that the encouragement of Paul's story, Lord, I pray that the transformation that he declares, Lord, the praise that he has, that you were intricately involved in every aspect of his life, even the dark times, that, Lord, I pray that that would be continually our testimony. I pray for my Christian friends, for those, Lord, that are going through those pit times, those, those times where it just feels so dark and so difficult. Lord, I pray that the light of this word would shine bright. That even though, Lord, we, through gritted teeth, accept that we may never know why, that, Lord, I pray that we'll be able to hold it with an open hand and find reason to praise you and to glorify you. But Lord, we've always said that this is a church where it's okay not to be okay. And yet, God, your word says that we're to come with our cares and with our tensions and our troubles and lay them at your feet. And sometimes, Lord, we weep over them because we don't know why, we don't know how you can move. But Lord, we're so grateful that you are more able than anything that we can bring to the table. And so, Lord, I pray for encouragement. Lord, I pray for strengthening and empowerment. Holy Spirit, I would ask that you would fill in the way that only you can, my brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray for a rededication and commitment to your word and to prayer, that God, we would soak ourselves in your truth, that our minds would be renewed. Lord, that we would think and speak the gospel. So grateful for your presence here now. And Lord, I pray for those in the room, Lord, who have never had that transformational conversion. Even if they've been in church for years, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself in a way that we've just heard only you can do. That, Lord, they would confess. They would ask for forgiveness. 
And that, Lord, you would flood in, slam into their souls, and change them forever. That's our prayer, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Let's stand together and sing this together as a prayer.